Welcome to episode 70 of the Cake Watch podcast. 70 episodes we've done already. Um, my name is Chris Kendall. I'm uh, an official working in the EU institutions, but that's not really why I'm doing the podcast. I'm doing the podcast in a strictly personal c- capacity. And with me is a guest, um, a member of the European Parliament, um, Alvina. Let me make sure I'm pronouncing it correctly. Alvina Alametze. Yes, that's quite right. Good. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank <laughs> yeah. you. And uh, you're from Finland originally. Yes. And you are one of the new intake of MEPs this year. And in fact, you're, you were on the reserve list of uh, people who would take up a seat after Brexit. In other words, one of the seats vacated by British MEPs. So there's a certain sort of bittersweetness to your being here. Yes, definitely, because I have been strongly opposed to Brexit for all these years and when there was the original vote um, on few years ago then I actually just wrote a blog post about what is going to happen now Mm. after Brexit and tried to analyze it but something that I could not forecast to the future was of course how this would intervene with my own personal life and coming here to Brussels but uh, I, I think that now as MAP I maybe feel even a bit more responsible than some of the other MAPs on having good negotiations with UK and mm-hmm. having good future relationship mm-hmm. with UK and mm-hmm. the people. Because of the way that I had to come here, mm-hmm. maybe maybe there is this idea that I really want there to be a good friendship. And mm. I hope the UK can come back someday. Yeah, very much so. Uh, that's something we can talk about. Um, Anyway, look. I mean, what we what we what we're going to do is this is this is the first time. Would you believe it? In seventy episodes that we have had a non-British member of the European Parliament on the podcast, which is actually a disgrace. <laughs> so thank you for <laughs> thank you for breaking that awful duck. Um, I've actually wanted to do this for a really long time because I do think it's really important that I mean, our, our listenership are primarily, I would say, British or at least based in the UK, um, and. It, I think it's really important that we do more to get um, uh, information about Brussels and that is not sort of UK centric. So, uh, non-British voices talking about Europe, uh, not from a Brexit perspective or a British perspective. I think that's actually really helpful and useful. And that's kind of where I'd like to steer the podcast now, post Brexit. But we'll see. Um, what's particularly interesting um, is your background not only as um, a, a Green Member of Parliament who ha- has come in to take one of those seats, um, but also you've got two particular areas of expertise which are interesting to us. I mean, one is the, your background in international relations, and you're a member of the Foreign Affairs Committee of the European Parliament, so uh, a very good contact for me to make, <laughs> which we might be seeing each other professionally in some capacity. But the other one that's really interesting is your interest in, in public mental health policy. Um, and that's something that we've talked about a lot on the podcast. We've had at least two podcasts where we kind of devoted them to talking about the mental health impact of the uncertainty that EU citizens and UK citizens in Europe were facing because of Brexit, but then also generally people feeling very anxious about the way the country was heading Brexit, but also the wider issues of pop- populism, and then linked to all sorts of even even wider issues, climate emergency, um, now of course uh, pandemic mm-hmm. <laughs> pandemics. I mean, there are all sorts of reasons for people to want to go back to bed as soon as they wake up, uh, and we're, we're not strangers to, to, to those feelings. So I thought it could be interesting for us to talk about those a bit, and you could talk about it from your particular perspective, what motivates you, what your background is, what you think you can do as a politician here in in the EU. And so how does that sound? That sounds sounds good. And uh, 
And yes, of of course, uh, some people might think that oh, it's a bit funny that uh, she's interested in foreign policy and peace and mental health because mm. those seem a bit unrelated to each other. But then um, my my story kind of makes sense in in that that why why I'm interested in both these topics because. Um, Basically, all my political activism kind of started when I was 15 years old. I was uh, in this suburb school mm-hmm. in uh, Finland, um, a school which was not of such a you know good quality, but we had a lot of social problems, and mm-hmm. I also had them. And we had a school shooting. Yeah. And uh, my friend died, was killed uh, during it, and. Uh, I was able to survive it, but this made a huge impact on how I viewed the whole world. Yeah. Because obviously, I started to getting this insight that that these kind of shooting and tragedies are so horrible that I don't want it to happen to anybody else, especially children and young people. Yeah, you were how old, you were how old at the time? Fifteen uh, years yeah, old. Yeah. yeah, I was in the ninth grade, yeah. and. Of course, obviously, then reading more about um, society and global events, I soon realized that this is, of course, these kind of shootings are going on in our societies, but also there are a lot of conflicts that are not solved currently, and especially Mm. the young people are suffering. Mm. But then also there was another big realization that led to this point, and this was about mental health, because... um, I heard after the shooting that the school shooter had tried to get help mm-hmm. yeah. um, from a mental health clinic, but he was diagnosed as not a severe case enough, mm-hmm. and he was not able to get treatment. Mm-hmm. And um, then a while after, he he shot all these people, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and. Of course, that made me really angry also, because Mm. my friend died, many people that I knew died. Mm. It was a horrible tragedy, and our school was a mess after, and Mm. we were just uh, in uh, great sorrow. The head teacher was also killed. Yes, Mm. exactly. Mm. And um, so basically, I started thinking that something is not right in the Finnish society. Mm. How is it possible Mm. that if a person who has such severe Mm. mental health issues will not get treatment? Mm. Mm. And that's why kind of those two themes became a core of my political activism later on. Mm. Mm. Yeah, um, I mean, something that I'm particularly interested in too, uh, I have um, my oldest daughter has special needs and, and mental health issues are a fact of life in, in those situations and trying to unlock their help that she needs and it, it, it's not an easy thing now these things are generally not EU competence are they they're generally member state competence or, or, or lower levels of government but there is an EU health policy angle here um, there's also as you said there's the um, there's, there's the foreign and security policy angle because one of the one of the great impacts of conflict is a ment- there's a mental health impact on populations in conflict, and especially the younger people. It's also the the the, the things that we were just talking about, climate, the climate emergency. Now, as a as a as a parent of young children, it it makes me extremely anxious to think, why the hell are we going to be in ten, twenty, thirty years time? Now, I'm, you know, I'm not going to be around much more than thirty years, but I've got a child who's less than two years old you know, what what kind of life is he going to face you know he's got I hope 70 years or more to live I mean I can't imagine what the world's going to be like in 70 years time given given the current trajectory so that that kind of stuff makes me extremely anxious and is going to make him anxious too as he gets older so and that's clearly an area for EU policy if, if, if the EU isn't acting to mitigate to address the climate emergency and to mitigate then what the hell are we here for so you've just come from can you tell us about the meeting you've just come from 
Yes, uh, I just came from a meeting with Greta Thunberg mm. in the parliament and um, she was speaking in the, the environmental committee and for all the members of parliament who mm. were interested. It was a full house, of course. Mm-hmm. I got a chance to sit in the very front row and, mm-hmm. and hear what she said. And it was very inspiring, of course, mm. that she has such a passion, mm. even though everything she hears daily is devastating. Yeah. So I think that is something that I truly admire. But it was a very interesting session because um, there were some of the MAPs who started immediately kind of blaming her and they had they had some valuable time to speak about climate crisis. But instead they chose to speak against Greta and say that she has been manipulated and she's mm. being used and mm. she should go back to school. Mm. And I was really ashamed for us mm. MAPs because th- that was really something I did not even expect, but but it happened. And um, Greta was there all the time and she was taking it really casually mm. and just listening and uh, yeah, with not much reaction. Mm. And that made me even more uh, admiring of mm. her. Mm. But it's true. I don't know about the British numbers, but in Finland, when you look at young people, for example, mm. from 15 to 30, around uh, over 80% of them have had uh, climate anxiety. Mm. And I'm pretty sure that the numbers stand in other countries as well. Mm. And uh, this is, of course, something the European Union has competencies, of course, to prevent climate crisis Mm. in our area and to show other countries also that we are working Mm. on it. But right now, the climate law that the Commission will be proposing, it does not seem to be good enough because it's only posing targets to 2050. Mm. But we would need a roadmap for the next 10 years, mm. Mm. not in somewhere in the distant future, but for the next 10 years. How do we get rid of uh, fossil fuel subsidies that the mm. governments give? How do we have coal budgets, mm. Mm. concrete measures? And that is something lacking right now. So it was really important that Greta was addressing us today. And yeah, I was seeing on Twitter that indeed she was not exactly enthusiastic about the the Green Deal package that the Commission's been been putting together. Um, so you're going to have quite a lot of work to 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 do on that. Presumably, you're you're not in one of the committees that would be directly. So it would be more when it comes to group politics, so deciding your group's position. Yeah, in group and politics. And my committee is our uh, Foreign Affairs Committee, mm. Development Committee, okay. Security mm. and Defence mm. Committee, mm. and also tran- Transportation and Tourism. Oh, well, that's certainly going to be... On, on this mm. one, I think we have the possibility to, for example, promote better railway connections mm. across mm. across Europe. But um, also, I think this is really a core issue in some ways in the Foreign Affairs Committee. Mm. We need to start working with the climate diplomacy and push mm. that so mm. we can get mm-hmm. India on board, USA, mm-hmm. China on board mm-hmm. for the mm-hmm. mutual fight mm-hmm. against the climate mm-hmm. crisis. Mm-hmm. This is something we must do. But it is very difficult if we cannot even show others that we have our own things under control. Mm. You know, If we don't have a climate law that is ambitious mm. enough and has goals for 2030, mm then how can we go to the Glasgow mm. climate talks mm. on the fall and mm. uh, say that we want others to do this and this. Mm. So I think that EU, even for the sake of the climate diplomacy, must make really good, ambitious own goals. Because if we don't make that, then it's a bit hypocrite to start asking for others. Mm. Uh, so, And that's what is important. We have to cut the global net emissions. So that's the point there. Mm. So both sides are needed, needed, and I think it's good that the Greta and uh, yeah. other climate activists are really raising the concern because it's true; it's not adequate right no, now. No, mm. I mean this is this is my impression. If we don't um, set, if if we're not modelling the behaviours that we want to see from others, I mean it's not going to happen. So we really need to be setting the level of ambition really very high. Um, and if we're not, that, that's that's where the that's where the anxiety steps in. Um, if if we're not going to do it, who's going to do it? Um, so we better do it. And and so that's where it becomes scary when you when you see a lack of ambition um, on the side of our politicians. So I mean, what what's 
how does mental health policy, public policy, interact with this? I mean, what what is there a direct link? Is there uh, is there action taken at the European level on 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 such on such things? Well, um, if you see about some of the other health issues, mm-hmm. uh, for example, you look at cancer, mm-hmm. you will find that EU has uh, funding for health research. Mm-hmm. EU is trying to make different, also directives, trying to um, make the environment mm-hmm. good so that this won't cause mm-hmm. health problems. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are a lot of things that EU can do in fact, mm-hmm. in the health department, mm-hmm. and EU is doing that right now. Mm-hmm. But then when it comes to mental health, then unlike mm-hmm. physical health, mm-hmm. it's a lot more taboo, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's a lot more problematic. And currently of the health uh, funding that EU gives for research and other projects, only around 1% is aimed at mental health. Mm-hmm. That's a really small amount. Because when you look at the European um, citizens, uh, every year annually, 4% of the gross domestic product is spent on untreated mm. mental mm. health mm. problems. Mm. So people don't get help and they, don't, they are not able to go to work, mm. they are not able to complete the studies, they have to use more healthcare services, otherwise social security, and this all creates a lot of financial burden also. Mm. And of course, it's a great tragedy for people. Mm-hmm. It's a big problem. So I think that it's funny that EU has not actually addressed this because mm-hmm. it's a major financial problem mm-hmm. also. Mm-hmm. And that would really require some finances. And also, if you look at physical health, um, for example, um, because of EU, we have all kinds of regulations. If you're working um, at a cash machine in a store, mm-hmm. then your your um, employer is providing you with uh, you know um, plastic um, kind of uh, safe. What is this? Gloves? Yeah, yeah plastic yeah, gloves. gloves. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, something yeah. like this. Because you might otherwise have health problems because mm-hmm. of the receipts. Right. And if you go, you're a contract worker. You build a house, then you get a helmet. You know. Right. But if you are working like, for example, like you and me, we mm. are work. We have been working in this kind of uh, knowledge intense project, using your brain and mm. using your other capacities. But there is not really any protection. Mm. There is no helmet mm. for that. Mm. People get burnout. They have overstress. Mm. They have other psychological issues. But they don't don't get support mm. from their workplace, and often they don't get support from the public health. Yeah. And there's a stigma attached to it, isn't there? So I had a, there was a period in my career where um, I had to take some time off um, for mental health reasons, um, and I that was a that was heavily stigmatised. Although it was directly work related, it was a work related illness. It wasn't the same as say breaking your leg uh, because you go down the steps on the way to a meeting. Then you know the coffers open and your um, insurance kicks in and, and they'll do everything they can to make sure that um, you're looked after because of course otherwise they could be on the hook um, mm. for all sorts of reasons yes. and that's good that's 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 the way it should be with, with workers rights but the minute that that it becomes a mental health issue as opposed to a physical health issue um, there's a real stigma attached and even in, in even owning up to it um, let alone then seeking some kind of assistance in dealing with it. Mm. Um, so, yeah, if, so, if, yeah, even that situation, uh, when people are at the point that they feel ready to seek help and mm. they go seek help, that's already pretty far, you know? Yeah, exactly. Because mm. there is so much stigma. So when you go seek help, then you should really get it immediately. Mm. But I know uh, the stigma is uh, it's it's so real, you know, mm. and uh, for me, I was deeply depressed after my friend's death uh, in my high school back mm. then, mm. At fifteen, and uh, after this, and um, I saw a doctor on it, and doctor said that you are so depressed that you probably will will not be uh, in such a condition that you can have a normal working career. Mm. Wow. And uh, yeah. I'm not sure if you can finish your studies. Yeah. And you should maybe look a bit like what you should do and think about this. 
and I was like, oh, okay, okay, yeah, because I was so sure because he he, he had this kind of impression that I will never recover yeah. from the problems, yeah. and. Um, now I feel like really, uh, ten years later, I feel like sending him a postcard from Brussels. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, should. like <laughs> quite funny. Like, yeah, well, you think I, I would not be capable <laughs> for work, but now I'm member of European Parliament and have done other <laughs> things on my career. So yeah, that was yeah. really, I think, that was my first impression on stigma. And then only later on, I realized that the doctor didn't absolutely have any idea of yeah. what he was doing or yeah, talking about. Yeah, you know, yeah, that yeah. Uh, because that's not the case, especially if you have some circumstance yeah. that is really normal that you react in a way that you are depressed and can't yeah. get things done. It doesn't mean that it's forever actually. We have research that even four times of short-term psychotherapy can um, decrease the depression symptoms yeah. by 50 percent. Well it's it's a sickness you know these things are, are an actual sickness and they respond to treatment and there can be all sorts of treatment I mean obviously there can be uh, pharmaceutical treatment but there are all sorts of other ways of, of treating um, this sickness um, through therapy, which are effective. Um, but the first step you need to do is to recognize it as a sickness and to destigmatize it. Um, now, the reason that we're talking about it was, I mean, <laughs> you, you've been through something absolutely horrific, um, at, which is at, I think, one end of the scale in terms of how it would impact any of us were we to go through an experience like that now what we're talking about I think often we get a lot of pushback on talking about mental health in the context of politics and, and, and Brexit uh, You obviously there's a certain contingent um, online who will tell us to suck it up snowflakes and um, mm. kind of mock 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 people for taking it so seriously uh, and often these are not people who necessarily disagree with your views but they maybe they don't feel it so strongly or maybe they you know they'll be they might even be friends and family members who like don't really understand why it's getting us so worked up um, now I can't pretend to compare this to having survived a school shooting but it's still real it's still something that people are obviously feeling and, and, and I, I think especially um, a lot of the people in my social group because we're people who are directly affected we're people who built our lives on and our careers on the UK's EU membership or on freedom of movement so we've got a lot of you know we've got a lot of friends for example who maybe they they, they operate a small business um, here in Brussels because they were allowed to through freedom of movement and they were uh, allowed to operate that business you know, right around uh, Europe and take advantage of all those things that you have as an EU member. All of this stuff is taken away. Where does that leave you? It leaves you feeling extremely exposed, extremely vulnerable and also very angry and resentful because often the people, you know, we, we haven't actually even been able to vote in the referendum, let alone um, have any um, have any have any real impact on, on what's going on? So this is why I think that the, the 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 mental health aspect is something that we've gone on about quite a lot on this podcast because I think we want to. There are a lot of people who who will be listening to this. I know for a fact because they've told they've told us who only acknowledge their own depression or their own feelings of anger because they heard us talking about it too. And if it hadn't been for that, I think people would have continued to suppress or to perhaps ignore or, or, or wouldn't have realized that what they're experiencing is perfectly natural and perfectly valid. And there are actually, there are things that you can do about it. So we're gonna talk a little bit more about the policy response at the European level. Um, but again, just to stress that Policy response is one thing, but there's also a medical response. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, neither of us are medical professionals, and we're not going to give medical advice here. But what I think we would say is that if you feel, um, if you as a listener feel um, that you are experiencing symptoms um, of, of, of depression, I mean, go and do something about it. You know, talk to a GP or, or use an online resource. There are all sorts of ones out there, and I'll link to them again in, in the episode notes. Um, but it. it 
it's not something that you should feel that you need to ignore or downplay. It's perfectly okay, and I think it's actually quite important to acknowledge these feelings. And at the moment, you know, the, 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 the immediate crisis of Brexit is now passed in, in, in the sense that it's happened and now we're in a new phase of it. So it, 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 there's not that daily sense of, you know, is it going to happen, isn't it going to happen? That, in, that brings a certain closure, um, although there's still a long path to travel. But there's all this other stuff going on too. There's the bloody coronavirus. <laughs> there's there's the looming climate emergency. So there's lots of reasons. That, so don't just ignore it. I would say is is that something that you've through your experience learned as well, or, or is that a message you? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Sure. And uh, I I think that you should never compare your own difficulties or challenges with the. Challenges of somebody else because I I think that all of the feelings are valid. Yeah. So there can be a life situation when you just don't have that much capacity to handle things, mm. and then something horrible happens. Mm. And if it's losing your job or losing your partner, like having a breakup, or or if it's school shooting, that really doesn't matter. It can be the variety is, mm. is big, but. However, it feels for you is important, and uh, to seek help mm. when needed. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I think that that that's the problem there. That there are many good services and many good service providers, mm. but generally it's often too much about if you have the money to pay for it, yeah, yeah. Mm. if you have mm. access. And this is something probably the reason actually why I'm here in European Parliament. In the end, mm. is that in Finland I was. Uh, initiating this campaign on a citizen initiative, mm-hmm. a legal initiative. In Finland, people can make this law uh, proposal, and if it gets uh, more than 50,000 signatures mm-hmm. of Finnish people, it will go to the parliament, mm. and the parliament will decide on it. And uh, I made one on immediate access to therapy. Mm-hmm. and Basically, um, having the right for everybody to go to a Finnish healthcare center and get treatment uh, immediately and get not only medicine but psychosocial treatment mm-hmm. like psychotherapy <coughs> sessions between 1 to 20 mm. sessions mm. because we know that this is very effective mm. it's very effective to give this kind of discussion help and that will uh, in many cases actually solve a lot of the problems so I made the initiative, and it's now um, now in the process of the parliament, but mm-hmm. it has quite a lot of support. Okay. And I think something like this would be really needed for other countries as well, because that proposal uh, makes <coughs> it equal for everyone to get the mm. treatment. And you know, in Finland, there is the universal health care for mm. everyone, but mm. this has not been the case for mental health. No. But now with this initiative, it would be also the same. If you break your leg or you break your arm, you go and get treatment. But the same with a broken mind, you will get yeah. treatment. So that's, that's the point. And that's uh, the, the campaign happened in the spring. Yeah. And then a bit spontaneously, I became a candidate for European Parliament. Mm. And I think that that's one reason people voted, because I kind of was part of this bigger mm. movement of mental health in Finland. Yeah. And we really found it important to yeah. start that kind of movement. That's 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 incredible. That, um, so there is a good chance that this will then enter into law in in Finland and become um, uh, a right for yeah. Finnish citizens. It's not certain yet, but there are many good indicators that at least, uh, for example, they are have said that they will first test it with younger people mm. and then hopefully expand it. Mm. But also, I'm a Helsinki city councillor, and in my uh, ho- my home city, I have tried to advance the same idea mm. even before the law mm. would come into action. And um, based on my city council initiative, we also opened this open clinic where mm. everybody can walk in and ask for mental health service. Mm. And there has just um, came really good data on that. Mm. So it shows that um, of the patients who have went into the clinic. Um, uh, I think um, it's two thirds of them got got enough support from uh, four sessions 
mm. with uh, with the, the service provider, psychotherapist or psychologist, for example. So many of them found help even in this kind of really short term and really fast intervention. Mm. And they didn't have the need to go back again. Mm. If, for example, you have a life, life crisis, then sometimes this is the best treatment that you can go there and deal with it right away. Mm-hmm. Because if you start blocking it inside you, mm-hmm then we all know what happens, mm. you know. Mm. There might be other problems. Well, you don't have the capacity to pay your bills. Mm. Then you will have financial problems. You cannot survive in your work. You mm. might lose your mm. job. So if a person goes to treatment early and has the help early, that's a really good thing because then the other mm. issues do not emerge. Do you know, that's really interesting. You see this such a lot. and and. and my experience in the UK is that you see so many people sleeping rough on the streets who are there because they have mental health problems and it's not that they are homeless because they are depressed but they're homeless because they lost their jobs they lost their homes they were kicked out by a partner because they were depressed these things snowball and of course these all there's, there's, there's the obvious human cost as you say but there's also yeah there's the, there's the financial cost and the cost of society wouldn't take an awful lot to address these at, a, at, at an earlier stage. So I, I'm full of admiration for for what what you, you're doing in in your home member state. What what is there scope for? Do you have ambitions for bringing a, a European approach to this? Yes, yes, definitely. Um, of course, we talk a lot about the social pillar, but the reality is that the EU does not decide. You at the moment it's quite likely that we cannot impose um, immediate access for everyone uh, directive on right. mental health for all the member states. But we can have, for example, projects and tests on it mm. in different countries. We can have research, money for mental health research, and we can have directives on psychosocial risk, uh, mm. risks and stress, mm. for example, mm. eliminating those. Mm. And this would be really important for the workplaces, for example. Many member states and all across the planet, the states don't really have enough procedures or they don't don't really have a good binding regulation on how to take care of your workers, for mm. example, mm. in terms of mental health. Mm. So that would really be needed because in many cases, if you have burnout, it's not really your fault. It's mm. the fault of uh, your job, for example, that is over-consuming and is not prioritized by your boss. Mm. Or you get depressed because the society is what it is and Mm. you cannot Mm. get, for example, proper housing. Mm. And uh, you you, actually in Europe there is um, OECD research from two years ago um, that um, told that, for example, for us in Finland, uh, of European countries, we have the highest correlation between um, uh, poor people and depression. Hmm. So the lack of financial resources will also, in many cases, as you said, hmm. it can lead to mental health problems. Hmm. So we should see this kind of as part of a big puzzle, but EU cannot maybe do a lot on the healthcare centers and what is provided there hmm. yet. But then we can do a lot of minimum wage and what is the income of people and what are the standards for the healthcare mm. and what are the directives for mm. workplaces or schools. And as a member of parliament, what can you do? Because the reason I'm asking is because of obviously we've had this debate now in the UK where suddenly everybody's woken up to the EU as an actor with agency. Uh, it's suddenly become this hot point of contention now that you know now we've left of course tragically but it's this hot point of contention as to whether the eu is democratic or not and um people have woken up to the fact that we have directly elected members of parliament and that these directly elected members of parliament can make a difference um now obviously it's the commission that would prepare legislation and then that would come to you as parliamentarians and to the council for further work but actually your influence can begin at an earlier phase you can also you know it, it's it's not exactly the right of initiative that the commission has but it is certainly um you can then seed well, why don't i let you explain it how how can you as a member of parliament go about 
influencing the Commission to introduce legislation along these lines? Well, personally, I will promise to become a big lobbyist on, <laughs> on mental health, so in, inside in the EP, and try to provoke the discussion. Um, whatever the theme is that we are discussing, that there is in many themes there is a mental health angle. So I think the core point is that whatever current legislation the Commission is working on or what the, whatever the EP is discussing, uh, we should always estimate what kind of mental health effects does this decision have on the people. So that would be the start of it all. The so mainstream basically. it, really. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Yeah. That, yeah, it sounds sounds a bit like uh, difficult maybe, but I think that is uh, one place to start. Mm. There is a lot of work. I uh, just joined the coalition of MAPs for mental health mm-hmm. and got actually to chair my first session in mm-hmm. that position already. And um, afterwards, I was just discussing with a random colleague in, mm. in EP, and he said that, "Oh, it's really great what you have started working on, but you know, in my country there are no mental health problems. <laughs> so it's probably Finland." And I was like. Yeah, well, well. <clears throat> let me see about that. Uh, so your statistics are here, <laughs> yeah. but you know the thing is that in many countries it's such a great taboo, and it was yeah. one also in Finland just a few years ago, mm. with the mental health NGOs and movement. We mm. have tried to work a lot on that, but mm. in EP it's still. But I will try to find out what I can do exactly. Mm. It was the same with the citizen mm. initiative. We we thought that what is our best way mm. to make this reality that people would get help faster and Mm. even if they have no money Mm. and then we were like okay let's make this law initiative Mm. Mm. so here I just have to find a kind of similar ways to hack the system you know yeah exactly and that that's the beauty of it that's what again people I think on the outside for understandable reasons generally tend to have a rather mechanistic view of how Brussels works well the treaty says this or um, that's not the role of Parliament, or this is, you know, this is this is what this institution does. And without only when you're here, do you understand that? Well, it's actually a lot more organic than that. And if you if you're a parliamentarian, that opens doors, right? So you, as an MEP, um, you instantly wear as like a coat the gravitas the, the, the of the fact that you had all these people voting for you you're there as a representative of X number of people who actually signed uh, you know put a cross in a box and put you where you are that actually does mean a lot um, <laughs> um, you're only here now what for a month mm. yes, you've been here for a month I mean yeah. I think you knew Brussels already but, but basically in your current role you've been here as a month now I've been here much much longer but both of us, I think, will be able to say, when you're an MEP, you're, it opens doors. And especially as you establish a reputation for, for, for particular pol- a particular policy area. Um, there are formal ways in which you can um, influence the system. Obviously, the, obvi- the obvious one is when you vote, um, of course, uh, on, on a piece of legislation in the plenary. There are the other ways, the formal ways, where you're a rapporteur, where you're preparing the formal parliament position on a piece of legislation, and no doubt that's one of the things that you will you will be doing. Um, but there are all the other ways, as you said. You know, people come and lobby you, but you also lobby the institutions. And mm. as a representative of the people who voted you in, that that gives you an awful lot more access and influence than if you were. If if you were here without your MEP card that lets you vote, if it's still possible for people to come and lobby the institutions, even private citizens, and it happens all the time. I was at a meeting this morning uh, with a group of people from CSO, civil society organisations, who came and they wanted to talk to us about certain things. And you know they come in and they do that, and that's that's actually a really useful contribution to the work that we do. But um, I think they would have met an altogether. A higher level of people if they had been six MEPs. <laughs> so. Well, yeah, I, I don't know, but um, but it's true that I think that I, I, <coughs> I will try to do my best to get through here the points that, mm. you know, uh, I was elected here upon. Mm. Mm. And, yeah, it's true. I think that if you look at, for example, Greta Thunberg, who we met today, mm. 
you will see that it's not so much about the formal power anymore. Yeah. It's a lot about how you can use the power and find the ways to mm. work with the power, mm. you know? Because um, there can be one girl who starts a whole phenomena. Mm. Or in case the sad case of Brexit, mm. there can be few people who start a terrible phenomena and mm. manipulate people and mm. use all kinds of Cambridge analyticals and mm. whatever. So I think that um, it's uh, important to understand that there are many ways to influence. And mm. just what I did in the Helsinki City Council to push through these mental mm. health initiatives, I just you know sat down with all the different groups and discussed like, um, how do you feel mm. about this and can we pull this through and what should we do? Mm. And mental health in a way is a shared topic when you mm. just get a chance to talk about it and uh, discuss it because everybody knows someone who mm. has mental health problems. And in Finland it's estimated that even 50% of the population feels it mm-hmm. at some point. Mm-hmm. So yeah, obviously that is one discussion that I will try to promote here in EU. Mm. And also one thing that I worked on previously when I worked for um, then peace negotiations and mm-hmm. uh, crisis management mm. NGOs and things like this is the youth peace and security mm. and how we actually listen to different perspectives and different people mm. when we are building peace would be really important in Brexit as well. Right now, you know, the young people were dismissed and their voices and uh, their vote was dismissed, yeah. I think. So talk to us a bit about that. I mean, what, what's what's next for... We're, we're currently in this phase of... Now, I, I for example, have really shut down to a certain degree. On, on Brexit issue or not I've um, and and so has my co-host Steve who you'll note is not here <laughs> um, for, for, for obvious reasons you know it, it, it's the, the fight to it's okay let's, let's draw the parallel with the coronavirus <laughs> so in the phase phase one of the of, of, of the emergency you're trying to limit the contagion and you're trying to make sure that um, it doesn't spread and become a, a pandemic and um, that's currently where we are with the coronavirus and with I think not an awful lot of success right now it looks as if it's not going to work but I, I'm not the expert well, with Brexit, you know, that was the Remain movement these last three years. That was trying to stop it from happening. Uh, and we didn't. Um, uh, it happened. Um, there is an argument to be had over whether it was even possible or, 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 or ethical to, to, to stop it. Or, uh, and that's an argument we've had many times. Um, but it happened. So now we're in, we're in a new phase. And in this new phase... Um, again, a bit like um, a bit like the coronavirus. I think it's about for a lot of us, it's about keeping ourselves safe, mm. uh, self isolating. Mm. I, I I I can't I can't really look at the news at the moment um, or British politics um, because I just find it all too depressing and I feel rather impotent. Um, now I don't think I am, and I don't think we are. And there are things that we can do as individuals. But right now, I think in this immediate post Brexit phase. Uh, certainly, speaking personally, uh, I'm limiting my exposure for issues of personal survival. Um, but that's smart, you know, because it's a grieving process in a mm. way. Because you're grieving mm. something that was huge and part of your mm. identity, likely. Mm. And for many people, something they have been born into and mm. then you lose it. Yeah. And it's a very hard thing. It's, <clears throat> it's in the mental health. It's really difficult, actually. And I think also people are blaming themselves. <clears throat> like, did we, like, did we do enough to prevent Brexit and stop it? But I think it's not, you know, your fault, because it's also the fault of European Union. I know that EU has not proved maybe or communicated clearly at least what kind of benefits are there to every single person in European Union area. Some things that are communicated are like, uh, yay, you get free movement, but that doesn't do much sense if you're living in a neighborhood, you, you, you like uh, don't have a lot of money, you don't have man- money to travel. Mm. Okay, you get Erasmus, but then if you don't go further than high school, you have no possibility to go to university, you don't have the possibility to benefit from this. Mm. This is only for people who are really from high social economical background. Mm. And, you know, mobile roaming, the same thing. Mm, mm. So I think that 
this is important to show people what are the actual benefits. And uh, yeah, I understand a bit about the Brexit experience in that sense that my whole family, when I was a kid, uh, two years old, and they voted on joining EU. Hmm. My whole family and relatives basically voted against. Mm-hmm. And they don't don't even always vote on elections. But that time they were like, now we go vote, you know, in Lapland and in North Finland. They were like, now we are voting. And they were so opposed to EU. But then today, of course, well, now I'm here. Mm. <laughs> they are like, oh, okay, you're in the European Parliament now. But now I think that uh, things have changed from 1995. And one argument for them is also that Europe is stronger together against some of the major powers like Russia mm-hmm. or China. Mm-hmm. And I think that even if you see no other benefits if, of EU, then this is one benefit that we are really stronger together in tackling the challenges. Mm. But I really hope that with the UK, the relationship with EU will stay the same as it mm. was, or at at least as close to the same as it was before Brexit. So that mm. is my goal in the negotiations as well. But seems really complicated because yeah. of your <laughs> current point. Yeah. But I think that is that that's the point that many people have not actually like seen the benefits of EU mm. and then they were really, you know, uh, had so much propaganda towards mm. them or that mm. is something that how it looks like from outside. Mm. Mm. No, I mean I you're right, of course I agree with you. I think that um you know, if I'm looking at my map on the wall, and when when you when you grow up in a suburb of Helsinki, um, you're what's that, hundred, two hundred kilometers from the border with Russia. Yeah. And you have grandparents, maybe great grandparents, who lived in. Uh, well, how how long ago was Hel- was was Finland uh, part of Russia? It was. Um, um, we became independent in 1917, so it, yeah. it has been over 100 years. But um, Just. Yeah, yeah, but but you know, my relatives are even from uh, the North Finland mm. and really close to the mm. Russian border. Mm. Mm. And you know, reindeer herders across uh, the border. With, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, with yeah. with you know, um, cows and agriculture, and mm. they were really worried that EU is going to take a lot of that away. Yeah. Yeah. But it's so much different reality now that I live yeah. in Helsinki also. It's very different than yeah. in the North Finland. Yeah. No, but sure. currently Finnish are quite pro-EU. Mm. And they, the Brexit has actually been beneficial for some other countries because mm. now the positivity towards European Union has increased in many mm. other places. Mm. They are seeing like, whoa, we don't want that mess. <laughs> but then I feel so yeah. much empathy for the Brits and I hope that we can go further and find solutions to stay together I mean what do you think I mean what's your sense of it it seems that there are people determined to make it a a, some kind of confrontational relationship Mm. some sort of conflictual relationship well let me call it a competitive relationship so it seems clear to me that the people who are currently in charge in the UK want to pivot to become a competitor of the EU and see that as something realistic um, and I mean, I would imagine that there are people in some EU capitals who take that quite seriously and are quite happy to reciprocate. Um, it seems to me to be a, a challenge now for the next couple of years to keep the EU side focused, as you say, on a positive narrative and, and, a, and a narrative of partnership. But I mean, you can take a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. As mm. I, I guess. There's also an element of just surviving, of saying this period too shall pass and there will be a point in the future, perhaps it's five years or more away, when attitudes in the UK will change and there will be people who are in power who seek a more uh, cooperative relationship Uh, and we need to be ready for that. But that's quite a long time away. What do we do in the meantime? How do we survive? (laughs) Yeah, that's I a don't good, know. good question. But I mean, yeah, I think I think that um, the good thing is that all of EU feels a lot of sympathy for the British people. Mm-hmm. And what I feel is that the the lines that Boris Johnson is drawing they do not represent what the ordinary people think really. 
But for me, it would seem that, uh, of course, I understand that people don't want to send a lot of money to EU, and they don't want EU to impose restrictions on you, and that may be understandable. But nevertheless, I think that not having a good deal is is devastating for economies for mm. both sides, and mm. I, I think that that's why we really should push for that and work for that and see that there is a good good deal. But until then, um, maybe in the future there could be political changes, but it needs some kind of revolution, you know. Mm. But now that I look at the American elections, then. You know, Bernie Sanders has made socialism quite okay <laughs> in, in USA. That's a big, big thing. And I think that political changes are possible. And mm. they don't always lead like um, to the your candidate winning instantly or instant rewards. Mm. But here it's possible that people will notice in the long term like what problems the politics of Bojo actually have created mm. and decide to do something different. I hope so, yeah. So I, yeah. at least for me, psychologically, I find always uh, this battle feel- will that mm. if there is something horrible, then I'm like, okay, but let's fight that, you know? Mm. And that makes me at least, for me, it makes it easier to survive these kind of situations. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people listening to this are going to be people in the UK who feel that their their views are not being reflected in the position being taken by the UK government yeah. in Brussels and they're yeah. worried that as time progresses with the UK outside the EU the EU will come to look on the UK as a sort of kind of single entity and look past the fact that there are divergent views you know the the, the country is the government of the country that's how that's generally how we deal with third countries we we acknowledge that there may be you know opposition and there may be minorities but generally you know when you're dealing with a country you deal with the government of that country and that is that country um i think a lot of people in the uk feel i think there were certain expectations raised by some members of the european parliament when they talked about some kind of eu citizenship or eu associate citizenship for sort of residual citizenship mm. for, for, for british citizens i think a lot of people feel that that you know the european parliament is you know was is but certainly was their parliament too you know that it represented them as eu citizens directly not through the member state but directly mm. and that was then taken away from them without their consent what can parliamentarians do those who are left um, to represent those people, do do you feel as a as a member of the European Parliament? N- never mind the fact that you are now sitting in a seat that was previously mm. taken by a British MEP. How do you feel as a member of the European Parliament? Do you feel any kind of responsibility for British citizens, former EU citizens? Is that something that means something yeah. to you? I mean, you know, be honest. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yes, yes, and. Um I, I think that, yeah, I was in some panel discussion where they asked asked from us Brexit MAPs, there were many of us, uh, like, how do you feel now that you're here and how is it different being a Brexit MAP compared to a normal MAP? And many people said that, well, I got to be a longer vacation and, you know, now I'm here and ready to work. And, yeah, I was still quite devastated about what happened, but... I just said that I feel a lot more responsibility because mm. of this position mm. to work mm. for. And of course, I I am from the Greens. Mm. So my whole ideology is pro-EU mm. and against climate change, mm. for human rights, mm. for things like this. And those are crossing borders. Yeah. So I really feel solidarity with the whole kind of generation and not even one generation, but people who are sympathizing with these values Mm. and attitudes. And I feel like we are not just representing our national parliaments, but Mm. we are representing the people who have hope in the similar values. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I'm glad you, I'm very happy to hear you say that. I mean, I agree, of course. And I like to think that you, the seat that that, that you now occupy, was not the seat of somebody like Seb Dance or Alan Smith, but you now occupy the seat of somebody like Nigel Farage or <laughs> <laughs> yeah. one, of, one, one, of the, one of the ones who sat on the yeah. far right of the chamber waving their yeah. little flags, being generally um, an irritant and an obstacle to the work of the parliament. 
They're gone. And now in their place we have young, forward-looking, progressive politicians who want to make an impact on the European politics and have ideas about what Europe can do. So thank you for that. That's, I think that's actually quite a, an uplifting thought, if I may. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, the British citizens are not forgotten by us. Yeah. But we are friends and we will, yeah. we will do our best. So look, we've been talking for nearly an hour. We should probably wind up. I mean, I'm, I'm, in, I'm stepping upon your valuable time. But before we go, I just want to very quickly, future of Europe. Um, you're at the beginning of your career as a, as a European politician. Um, what's, what's your vision? What's your vision for the future of Europe? Um, I'm thinking institutionally. I'm thinking architecturally. I'm thinking, where does this go? I mean, are, we, are you scared that we're losing momentum? Are you... Do you have ambitions for that, that go beyond, obviously, the policy? I'm talking about the institution. Hmm. Give, give, me, give me a little bit on that before we... Well, I hope that we go into a bit deeper cooperation. And uh, I definitely hope that we can uh, also eradicate this kind of racist, populistic voices between us and inside us and be stronger also towards the rest of the world. And obviously I hope that EU will have strong institutions and they will be stronger than single MAPs, but they will be something that represents our core values that we have. And this is something actually of really high demand currently when you look at the situations of China or other countries that are ignoring human rights, for example, it's really important that we in Europe, we keep our values and we don't let them go. Mm. Right now we have a little bit. With China, for example, we do just a lot of trade cooperation. Later on, we might look back at the situation of Uyghurs in China, for example, and see that there are circumstances that are resembling Holocaust. And we might be very ashamed of just, you know, pushing cooperation without thinking about this aspect of human rights. So I think that EU must really fix the core values and stand up for them even more courageous than right now that we are doing. And I hope that we are on the way there, definitely, and that we can um, be stronger this way together. So I can definitely be expecting to draft some replies to letters from you on behalf of my bosses <laughs> Definitely. To, to some challenging letters pushing uh, asking some difficult questions I hope definitely and I am I don't know everything about everything <laughs> so I always have huge respect for experts so whatever researchers experts there are listening that I'm happy to hear your thoughts and meet you and I'm doing this all the time to learn okay. about the different angles yeah. I respect science and people in different NGOs a lot so yeah. yeah we have a big task but we have to stick together yeah. and not let you know the others kind of slow us down yeah. no I think this is a, I mean I, I, that's what drives my passion for Europe I mean I think that as you say collectively you know we we are not negligible you know we we can really move the world in a positive di positive direction and I think the fact that we can then creates an obligation for us to do that so that's what drives me and that's my my vision that's why I do the work that I do in a very small capacity and that's why it's really exciting to see sort of young politicians coming through who have that vision too so I really hope that um, you know that that's the direction in which we head and that, that our leaders um, take on that ambition you, know, you hear you hear some good things um, I'm excited that the current college has as a priority the Green New Deal but as we were talking about earlier on it doesn't doesn't make much difference if it isn't sufficiently ambitious so well we'll see maybe maybe you guys can tighten it up a bit yeah yeah that's something we are trying right now and that's really <laughs> acute but thank you for all your great work that you do I, I truly respect that and uh, also I wish all the best to people especially in UK who are listening and I hope that we can uh, do the best possible work that we have in our surroundings and also globally so um, but I'm always optimistic you know Good. maybe because of the hardships that I went through in my yeah. youth and yeah. so then, then I feel that 
we must fight and we must stay a bit optimistic. Listen, Alvina, thank you so much for coming. Uh, I appreciate it. The, the, the European Parliament building is currently closed to visitors because of the coronavirus, which means that you had to leave your office and come all the way over here to mine through the rain. So I appreciate that. It's not normally what we ask of, of our members of Parliament. We have a bit more respect for them than that. But thank you for doing that. I appreciate it. Um, it's been really interesting. We hadn't met before, so um, it's been really interesting to meet you. I'm very happy to have done so. Um, sorry for the various interruptions, which listeners won't know about because I'll have edited them out. Thank, thank God. Um, so, yeah, thanks very much. And maybe it's not the last time we speak, um, personally so. or on the podcast. Yeah, I hope so. Thank you so much. I'll see you All again. All right. Thanks very much. Thank you.